Well, this is the third message in the series called The Thinker, and it's an unusual series in that we said that this is going to be a series where we're going to kind of initially at least set the Bible aside, set God's Word aside, and we're just going to use our powers of observation and reason and see where they lead us, and then we'll check up and see what the Scripture affirm or contradict uh, as to what we come to conclusions by by our reasoning. So if you missed the first message, I've said this last week, I'll probably say it again. If you missed the first message in the series, we had bad weather and that sort of thing. Uh, we ended up doing it on Wednesday night. Please go to the website and watch that. That, that was kind of foundational for everything else that comes from that. So uh, it, would, it would be make whatever's going to come across in the next few messages more meaningful to you. Well, I want to start off with a quote by a guy that I started in the first message with. His name is Sam Harris. He's a rather well-known uh, author, philosopher, and, of course, outspoken atheist. And in a letter to a Christian nation book that he wrote, he says this. The president of the United States, at the time it was George Bush was the president, the president of the United States has claimed on more than one occasion to be in dialogue with God. If he said that he was talking to God through his hair dryer... This would precipitate a national emergency. I fail to see how the addition of a hairdryer makes the claim more ridiculous or offensive. So if you listen to what Sam Harris is getting at, he's getting at, and he repeats this theme, and many atheists do, the notion that we people that believe in an invisible deity that we can't see with our eyes, we can't hear directly with our ears, that we're just being foolish. It, it, it's kind of this statement right here is what Sam Harris and a lot of atheists kind of put in our face. Why doesn't God just show up and speak up? I mean, if he's there and he cares, why doesn't he just show up and why doesn't he speak up? And more than likely, some of us in this room have thought the same thing. Many of us probably have thought, you know, if, if God wants people to believe in him, all he has to do is show up and speak up. And who won't believe in him? Everybody will believe in him if he starts showing up and speaking up. But the problem with that kind of thought is this, is, is that that kind of thought seems to think that the problem is that God wants people to believe that he exists. But that's not what he is concerned about. In fact, he says just the opposite. He says that every human, every atheist, every human being actually, in fact, knows that he exists, can't get away from the fact that he exists, although we can drive it out of our minds. And we shared a verse in the first message and the second, and it's from the book of Romans in the New Testament. It says, because what can be known about God is, what does it say? Plain to them. Because God has made it plain to them. It goes on. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been, what does it say? Clearly seen. Invisible attributes clearly seen because they are understood through what has been, what does it say? Made. It's saying you look at creation And you know that someone with great intelligence, great purpose, great planning had to create it. We don't look at an automobile and think to ourselves, I bet you that just popped into existence. You don't look at a human being and think, I bet you that person just popped into existence, didn't have any parents at all. 
God says when we look at creation, and we, in the first message, we took this to a large degree. We, we looked at the vastness of space, you know, 200 billion galaxies, and each galaxy, 200 billion stars, not to mention all the planets around them. We looked into one single cell of DNA, and we found that there are 3 billion pieces of scripted code inside DNA. So the evidence of a creator is everywhere, and, and God says pe- people know that they know God does not accept the notion that some people say, well, I don't really know if he's there. He says it's not true. He says he's made it plain. He's made it plain through everything that he's made. So to answer Sam Harris' question, you know, well, why doesn't God speak up and show up, essentially? You know, why, why is it uh, not ridiculous to think that one can be in dialogue with this being? Uh, the answer would be that he has shown up. He has spoken up but not in the way that we would perhaps like to see it done. And you're going to see as this message goes on, there's a very, very good reason for the way that God has chosen to reveal himself. And so let's ask that question. Why would such a being, why would such a being, this creator being, reveal themselves? Would be what would be up there. There we go. So... um, To get our minds going with just pure observation and pure reasoning, asking the question, why would a being like this reveal themselves? Let's look first at just nature. Uh, Here's here's a few pictures from nature. Just a couple of them. How cute is that? that? That's remarkable. And then this one, best of all. Now, when we look at nature, it's pretty consistent that you see the adults nurturing they're revealing themselves they're interacting because their their newborns are vulnerable they're needy so the parent reveals themselves intervenes in their life nurtures and we consider it a shocking condition when something like this happens this newborn was abandoned in new york city in 2015 was actually left in a church nativity scene and uh, the mother was eventually found, and, and it was a sad set of circumstances, to be sure. But we find it shocking. If animals take care of their offspring, their little ones, their image bearers, we just take for granted that humans are going to do it. It, it just seems to be a natural thing that if you, if you care at all, you're going to come to meet the needs of the individual that's vulnerable and so on. So... If that's the way we see in nature, and if that's the way we see humans behave, which are the highest developmental species we can see on the planet, wouldn't it just make sense that this creator, who we said in message one, has to be better than the best human? All the capacities that we can envision of a good human being, if it's kindness and compassion and concern and helpfulness and sacrificial love, well, if those things can exist in certain humans in an imperfect form, we deduced in the first message, they must exist in an even higher form in the Creator who gives those capacities. And so we came out from the very first message with this vision of this God, this Creator being, being a Christ-like perfect being And so if animals and if humans care for those that bear our image, how much more would it make sense that this creator would reveal himself sufficiently to make sure that our needs are cared for and we're nurtured? So what we find is this. Image bearers care for those who bear 
their image. We find it in the animal world. We find it in humans. Image bearers care for those who bear their image. So wouldn't it just make common sense? Wouldn't it be rational? Rational? Wouldn't it be reasonable to consider that, that the creator of all would be the same way? That we that bear his image, he would sufficiently reveal himself to us and nurture us according to what he sees as our highest and best needs. Let's look and see if scripture just kind of affirms this. Here's a few passages. In the book of Isaiah, in the Old Testament, it says, Yet you, Lord, are our Father. We are the clay. You are the potter. We are all the work of your hands. There's a a relational context here. There's a fatherly love that the Creator has for us that bear His image. Another passage in Matthew chapter 6, verse 26, Jesus speaking, he says, Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more what? Valuable, valuable than they. Your Father knows what you need. Before you ask him, God reveals himself as one that is present and aware and concerned with fatherly love about our deepest and truest needs. It just matches. One more in the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. It says, our parents trained us for a little while. They did what they thought was best. But God trains us for our what? For our good, our ultimate, our highest good. He does this so we may share in his what? Now, holiness is a word that, you know, we have spooked it up a little bit in church world. We, we make it so mystical that nobody seems to know what it means. Holiness just means wholeness. We partake of God's wholeness. God is whole. Uh, his mind and emotions and reason and will, they're, they're all in sync. They're, there's no inconsistency. He is totally whole. He always does what is good. And when we are whole or made holy... We become like him. And so God trains us. He nurtures us. And that means that he's going to reveal himself sufficiently so that we can develop to become whole or holy like he himself is. So we can see that it just makes sense that this being who is the creator of the universe would also reveal himself sufficiently to us. So that kind of brings up the question then, then what means, what means is such a being likely to use? So if God's going to reveal himself to us, and he loves us, and he's going to nurture us, and he wants what's good for us, and he wants to see us partake of his character, his holiness, what means would he use? Well, whatever means he would use, they would have to be, first of all, consistent with the creator's eternal plans. In the second message, we found that before the creator created anything at all, he had already made a comprehensive plan that had looked into every possible contingency. It was comprehensive, and he made it certain his plan would be fulfilled. So he saw each detail. So whatever means that God's going to use to reveal himself to us, it has to be consistent with the Creator's eternal plans. Last week, we showed you this is kind of putting together what the Creator's eternal plan consists of. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family of Christ-like beings. Well, I should have said, what kind of beings? And you would have said, Christ-like beings. Your destiny has always been, my destiny has always been, your capacity is, my capacity is, 
Once I return to my creator and trust to become, to grow, to develop, Christ became as we are so that we can become as he is. That's always been the eternal plan of God, our, our development in this little period of time. God's big plan is the development of an eternal family of Christ-like beings united in loving devotion to Christ and one another. That's for eternity. We will be forever eternally devoted to Christ in love and devoted to one another in love. And the longings of every human heart, the longings that we know we cannot have in this life, cannot have in this world, a place where everybody's loved and respected and safe and has all they want all the time, a place where nobody has to be anxious or worried or fearful, where there's no sickness, sorrow, pain, and death. It's all going to come. God has planned it, but he planned it to be in a process, and the process we're in the middle of yet. We read last week in the message, it's just for a little while. This season here is just for a little while, and then the scripture says we'll be exalted to become like Christ ourself. That, that's God's plan. That's his destiny. So whatever means he's going to use to reveal himself, it's got to be consistent with his eternal plan, but if, if it's going to be consistent with his eternal plan, then it can't, it can't do some things. It can't uh, it can't interfere with authentic development. You see, God's purpose for you, for me, in this life is, first of all, that we would be reconciled with our Creator. We return to Christ, our Creator, in trust. We become His follower. But then after that, the rest of life is meant to be a developmental journey in which we become more and more like Christ and we do those things that a Christ-like being does. That is the purpose for your life. There is no other purpose. That is God's purpose for a human life. So whatever means he's going to use to reveal himself, it can't interfere with authentic development. What do you mean by authentic development, Randy? Well, authentic development means that, that the developmental steps that I take, they have to come straight from within me. There, there can't be any, any pressure from the outside. In other words, if God is using force on me, I'm not going to develop authentically. I'm going to do what I have to do because he's forcing me. Or if God uses fear on me, I might do what he wants me to do, but it's not authentic. It's not what I really want to do. Let me add to that mercenary motivation doesn't work either if God and, and churches we've done a terrible job not this church for 27 years but but churches have done a terrible job on this the way we present what we call the gospel the good news you know how we present it we say essentially this if you don't want to go to hell and you do want to go to heaven you better get right with Jesus well what is that I mean you're 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 appealing to the most base mercenary motives that a human being has. Save your skin. Of course I want to save my skin. Of course you want to save your skin, but that doesn't mean that I trust Jesus. That doesn't mean that I like him. It doesn't mean that I like his ways, his will. It doesn't mean that I like righteousness. And churches have put it into the minds of people that if you just want to go to heaven and you don't want to go to hell... All you got to do is mumble something about Jesus, and man, your ticket is punched, you're on your way. This is horrible. It is first of all, foremost horrible because it's a terrible distortion of God's character. It is a complete distortion of God's word, and it will leave people 
in this life never becoming the beautiful human beings that we have the capacity to become once we authentically trust Christ and do the beautiful, powerful, helpful things that we will have the power to do when we're really reconciled to God. So authentic development means that I am observing God and His will and His ways through His Word, and as I observe it because I actually trust Him I choose to do whatever he says. When he says, Randy, I want you to stop doing something in his word, I stop it. Not because I'm afraid or because he's rewarding me, because I trust him. It's authentic change. I, Like Jesus said, blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. When I see the life of Jesus, I hunger and I thirst after it. It is authentic. The changes that I make in my life, I don't make them because of fear. I don't make them because of force. I don't make them to earn some reward. I make them because I see this is, this is the right way. This is beautiful. This is certainly the only way. That life can work. And, and so whatever means God's going to use to reveal himself, this is important where I'm going with this, it's got to be consistent. It can't interfere with authentic development. What do you mean, Randy, interfere with authentic development? All right. Supposing that you were a hired um, guard in, in some uh, store, you know, maybe a clothing store or something like that, holidays, you know, they, they bring on some guards because there's a lot of shoplifters and so forth. So there you are, you're doing your job, you're watching the people, and uh, the people that are in your area, you know, is the best you can tell, they're all upstanding citizens. You don't see anything at all that makes you suspicious. Now, you see the people in your area, you're wearing a uniform, so they see you too, okay? Does that mean that your observation is right? That, that the people there are upstanding citizens and they wouldn't dream of stealing something? No. <laughs> the fact of the matter is, a thief, a lifelong thief, a lifelong sh a pro professional shoplifter, if they see you in your uniform, they will behave themselves just like an upstanding, honest person, right? You see... They're not being authentic. If God, so to speak, was showing up all the time and speaking up all the time, oh, people, people would change their behavior. You can believe that. But they wouldn't be changing their behavior because they see something beautiful and they want to be like it. They would change it because they're afraid of the consequences. It's no different than... Not that this affects any of you guys, but you know, you're going down the road and, and the guy's standing there with the radar gun... And, and, of course, those other folks, they slow down. Uh, you don't have to because you're doing the speed limit. But, yeah, <laughs> they slow down. <laughs> but they're not slowing down because they think, oh, my goodness, the traffic laws are so wonderful. I just believe if, if, if I just go one mile an hour over 55, the wheels will fall off my car. They're, they're trying to save my life. No, we don't believe that for one second. Um, so authentic, God can't show up in these big ways and speak up in these big ways because it would be so overwhelming, so intimidating, an omnipotent, almighty, omnipresent. That means present everywhere all the time, in your thoughts, around you, everywhere. A being like that can just so intimidate us that none of our behavior becomes authentic. Authentic behavior happens when we don't feel any intimidation or threat. And so God's withdrawal, his hiddenness, is a necessity for us to have the opportunity to authentically develop. Let me go further. To authentically become those that love righteousness and hate evil. 
authentically love Christ and want to serve him and do his will and those that don't. That's going to make more sense as we get to the end of this message. So whatever way he's going to use to reveal himself, it's got to be consistent with his eternal plan. It's, it can't interfere with our authentic development. We, we all good up to this point, you see? So he, he's kind of limited in the ways that he can reveal himself. Now I'm going to give you, using just pure observation and reason, I'm going to give you four other facets of what would be necessary for him to reveal himself if he wanted to see this kind of development occur in us. So here, here's what we would have is this. First of all, however, however he reveals himself, it's got to be universally accessible. No matter where you're at in the planet, no matter what time in history, this revelation that God's going to give himself, it's got to be equally universally accessible. Secondly, it's got to be individually understandable. It has to be something that's sort of experiential to every human being, that no one could possibly miss it unless they chose to. Thirdly, I believe it's got to be historically verifiable. It's got to be something that's so factual, so compelling, so rooted in reality that you just can't avoid but to be impacted by it. It has to be solid. It gets onto this trustworthy. It has to be timelessly dependable. It has to be kind of a a single source revelation that can't be modified or tinkered with. It's, it's like there, and it's unchanging, and it's clear, and it's certain for all generations and all peoples at all geographical locations. I, I believe that these are, these are rational, reasonable conditions. If, if the creator is going to reveal himself, it has to be universally accessible, individually understandable, historically verifiable, and timelessly dependable. Well... Let's see now what the scripture says about this. Has God's revelation met these conditions? Let's check the first condition, universally accessible. That should be Psalm 19. Forgive me for the error there. Uh, 19 verse 1 and 2, and I'm not sure where it's at. Where, where's it at? There it is. All right. The heavens tell about the glory of God. Tell. that speech, is it not? Tell. The heavens tell, the heavens speak about the glory of God. That means his character, his power, his, his goodness, and all these things. The skies show that his hands created them. Day after day, they do what? They speak about it. Wait, wait a minute, wait. I look up in the sky, I don't hear any voice. No, but they're speaking. They're giving a lesson. All you got to do is think about what you're looking at. We talked about that in message one. Day after day, they speak about it. Night after night, they make it known. Everyone, everywhere in the world, at every single point in history, has the same accessibility to this revelation of God. You look at creation, you look at the skies, you see its vastness, you see its complexity, and you can start saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. Everything couldn't possibly have come from nothing for no reason, so everything is here, so someone with great brilliance and great power, and someone that must be eternal and outside of time created all this creation is speaking it's accessible to everybody every generation throughout time that matches the condition we said let's look at another one the second condition was it has to be individually understandable this one's really fascinating because it gets inside of us it says even the gentiles and when scripture talks about gentiles it just means those that were not jews who didn't have access to the the old testament of that day even the Gentiles who do not have, they do not have what? God's written law. See, they didn't have the Old Testament, didn't have the Bible. 
even those that don't, didn't have the Bible, no, didn't have the written revelation, they show that they know what? His law. When they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. It goes on. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their what? Written in their hearts. They haven't, they haven't read it, but it's written in their hearts. How is that so? For their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them that they are doing right. Just want to ask you a question. Can you each remember back when you were a little kid, maybe one of the first times that you did something that you knew was bad? Just, just curious. How, how many think you could? Yeah, you kind of remember. Can I see your hands? Can you remember how bad that felt? And, and, and you're a child. You don't know exactly where it's coming from or why. You just had this very, very uncomfortable reason. Then, of course, we got older. We became masters at it. We, we dulled our conscience, and we could do all kind of terrible things and not feel it as much. But when we were young and sweet and innocent, you know, but even as adults, you know and I know, a guilty conscience, unresolved guilt, feelings of shame can torture us, torture us, cripple us throughout life. Where where'd this come from? Why is this here? Who does this speak of? Who, whose law is this that always pushes us toward what is right? Now, some of you are thinking, hey, you can really damage your conscience until you can get where you can kill a human being. It's just like killing a bug. Yes, we can. We can damage it. We can distort it. But in its origin, it pulls us or it pulled us Toward God's word. God reveals himself. Listen to me. God reveals himself to every human being from all time, every place in history, every place in geography. He reveals himself on the inside. Who is, where does this voice come from? Why does it seem to make me feel good when I do things that I know are right, things that I would want somebody to do to me? Why does it, why does it torment me so when I do things that evidently are wrong, things that I would never want somebody to do to me? God's revelation, individually understandable. Let's look at a third. We said that his revelation would have to be historically verifiable, something unavoidable in its impact. Listen to this, the beginning of John's gospel. It says, in the beginning was the word. Notice that it's capitalized. And the word was with God. And the word, what does it say? Was God. It's kind of mind-bending. The word became what? That's talking about Christmas, when Jesus, the Word, the creator of the universe, took on human form. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. It goes on. No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who himself, what does it say? Is God, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has done what? Has made him known. So now... Because when people say, oh, oh well, you know, why doesn't God show up? Well, he has shown up. He, he showed up literally in physical form for 33 years. And the world has been rocked ever since. Two billion people. They may not be real deal disciples of Jesus, but at least two billion people alive today will say in some shape or form, yes, I believe in him. He's impacted history like no other. You can't. You can't possibly be considered a, a serious historian 
and not take the reality of the person of Jesus of Nazareth seriously. So God's revelation has been so so verifiable and historical. He's entered into reality. He's left a record, a record that would stand up in a court of law where evidences are looked at and compelling evidences sway a case. And then finally, we said this. We said it would have to be, this, this revelation would have to be timelessly dependable, meaning that it would be dependable 100 years back or 500 years back or 700 or a couple thousand years back, and it would be dependable today. And we know that life has changed dramatically. We know that the world we live in today is so different than the way most human beings have ever lived. But this, this revelation would have to be timelessly dependable even right down to today. Listen to these words from 2 Timothy chapter 3 in the New Testament. It says, God has breathed life into all what? Scripture. Now we're on to a whole different level of revelation. It started with Moses. God chose to start revealing himself to the nation of Israel through Moses and telling him, I want you to start writing things down. And you must preserve this. You must be extremely careful to get it down perfect. And it must be recopied with perfection. And they had tremendous rules they had to go through. And then we go on down to the time when Jesus comes. And Jesus is God in flesh. God's given a complete revelation of himself now in Jesus. And then we have the New Testament. So now in Scripture, we have the full, listen to me, we have the full revelation of God right now in this book. Anytime, anytime we want to know who God is, what he thinks about anything at all, all we got to do is go write this book. And what a genius that he put it in a central place where it doesn't matter if you're in China or whether you're in Africa, it doesn't matter where you're at, you're going to read the same thing. It will be in your language, but it's the same revelation of God as opposed to God just showing up and you telling me, hey, God showed up at my house last night and guess what he told me? You know, well, I don't know if I can believe you or not. You don't know if you can believe yourself or not, right? But he put it in a place where it's timeless and it's dependable. God has breathed his life into Scripture. It is useful for teaching us what? What is true. We need to know what's true about life. What's true about God? What's true about life? We need to know what's true in the universe. The Scripture teaches that. It's God's revelation. It is useful for correcting our mistakes. Lord knows we need that. It is useful for making our lives what? whole again it builds us we are all junior scientists in life we go through life experimenting with things we're just trying to be happy but we try things that instead of making us happy they might make us happy for a short time and then i'm doing us damage later on and maybe great damage to those around us we're not whole but when we start aligning our life with the way the creator designed us to live we start getting healthy and healed and whole the, the reason joy doesn't make a whole lot of sense to people often in Scripture is that joy is not the same as happiness. Happiness is based on what's happening in your life. You know, you, you go to a good concert, you're happy for the moment. You go on a shopping spree, you're happy for the moment. But it doesn't last. Joy is something that lasts. It is this, this emotional state that one possesses when one's life is in harmony with the way God designed us to be. When our mind and our emotions and our reason and our conscious, conscience are all in sync with God's will and word, we feel good about ourselves, literally, all the time, even in the worst seasons of life. That's joy. It says it's useful for correcting our lives and making us... Uh, 
for making our lives whole again. And it's useful for training us to do what? We don't always know what's right to do. God's given us revelation. We get in a situation, a relational situation with a person, and we're not sure. Man, what's the right thing to do? I, I'm not sure. I just don't know. Let me go to God's word. Let, he's given me this revelation. It's comprehensive. If I don't know, I'll go to somebody that knows his word better. It's there for us. So how would this being reveal himself? We've looked at it. First of all, he'd reveal himself in a way that's universally accessible, individually understandable, historically verifiable, and timelessly dependable. Now, in closing, I want to tell you an old story that you perhaps have heard before, but I hope that it will be as impactful as maybe the first time you heard it. But it's told by a, a Danish philosopher called Soren Kierkegaard. The poor guy only lived to be 42 years old. He was born in 18, 1811, I think, or 1813. Or 1813, died in 1855. But uh, Kierkegaard tells this story about a king, a most powerful king, and a peasant girl that happened to be in the king's kingdom. And as the story goes, the king one day catches the view of this, you know, beautiful peasant girl, and he just goes head over heels in love. He just falls in love with her. He observes her secretly, and the more that he observes her, the more he loves her. And now he's in a quandary. What does he do? He thinks if, if he goes to her, how will she respond? Because this king was feared all around the world of his day. Everyone trembled at his word. Whatever he wanted, he could have. And so how does he approach her? And he thinks, well, I, I could send a, a carriage down to her house, and you know, they could offer her gifts, and I could offer her to come to the palace, and then I could wow her with beautiful food and, and beautiful clothing and all these things. But then he thought to himself, you know, she might come because she just doesn't feel that she has a choice. Everybody fears me. Everybody wants to please me. And, and the stuff I offer her, she might act like she likes me because just because of the stuff that I have. So he says, no, nah, no, nah, I can't do that. And so he's going all around and he's talking to his advisors and he, and he just can't figure. He can't figure, how could I ever know, how could I ever be sure that she would actually open her heart to me and love me for myself because I'm too intimidating. My, my presence, all that I'm about, all that people know about me, how can I ever know? You ever think of the, the torture of a celebrity or somebody that's powerful or rich? They inevitably are always tormented to some degree. Does this person really love me or do they love what I've accomplished, what I have, what I own, what I can do for them? And so the king was tormented. What do I do? He had to do something. He had to know if it was possible, if it was ever going to be possible for this young peasant girl to love him for himself. And so he finally concluded there was but one thing. And he made a decision, and the decision he made gladly, he would leave his throne, and he would leave his throne forever. He would go into the town and take on peasant's clothing, and he would become, in fact, a peasant. And he would live as a peasant for the rest of his life. And he would find a way to meet this girl in the desperate hope that she might open her heart and be interested in him. He would sacrifice everything with no certainty. You've got to listen to this. With no certainty that she would ever 
once he revealed himself as he was, that she would ever love him for himself. Folks, I've just told you the story of Jesus, the creator of the universe. The, the problems he has in revealing himself. Why doesn't he speak up? Why doesn't he show up? Too intimidating. You see, the truth of the matter is, this creator of ours, when the scripture is exhausting itself to describe God, it says three things about him. It says God is light, God is love, and God is spirit. God is love. He is love incarnate. And the truth is, he wants, and I don't understand this, I don't understand it at all, but he wants my authentic love, and he wants your authentic love. We have dumbed this down. We have distorted the character of God so terribly. We have made it sound like it's all about make sure your rocket goes up to heaven and the elevator doesn't go down to hell. It is shameful what we've done. We have riddled people with guilt and fear. The very thing that God wants to cast out, 1 John 3, 18, it says, God says, perfect love casts out fear. He knows we can't really... We can't really ever authentically grow and develop. We can't relate to him if we're still scared to death of him. He does not want us afraid of him. And so Jesus will forever, maybe you know this, maybe you didn't, he will forever be in a human body for all eternity. Forever he will bear the scars, the scars of his love in his hands, in his feet. Scripture teaches that. And he knows full well that some of us won't give a rip. But he had to make the journey. And so it is today. We have to ask ourselves, the means that God has used to reveal himself, they're gentle, they're soft. He doesn't push himself on us. He waits for us to care enough to look. Check out the universe. Check into the word. Get back into the story of God himself in flesh in Jesus. He waits. He waits. And so I, I think we've got to ask ourselves, is the problem that God doesn't speak up clearly enough or show up enough, or is the problem that some people, not saying anybody in here, but some people just really are not interested in listening to where he's speaking or looking to where he has shown up? And then, of course, I have to ask, and you have to ask, what about ourselves? I mean, let's, let's start here. This, this church, for 27 years, I have done everything that I know humanly possible to get people to be so eager to know God as he has revealed himself in this book. And it is not easy. It takes study, and we've offered all kinds of classes and all kinds of groups toward it. If you go through this life, I'm, I'm going to insult some of you, but I'm just going to say it. If you go through this life smart about a lot of other things, and I bet you you guys are. I know this is an intelligent group we have here. If you go through this life smart about a lot of things and ignorant about this book, I, I feel very, very bad for your choice. Please, it's not too late. Let's take advantage of the great, humble revelation that God offers to us uh, day in and day out particularly in his word. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we are grateful that just using observation and reason, we can see that it just makes sense that a being 
like yourself, that you would certainly reveal yourself to us. You know we need nurture. You know we need training. You know we need direction and correction. You know we need mercy and forgiveness and certainty of forgiveness. You, you know we are needy creatures, that we're scared, and, and half of our lives were spent uncertain. Thank you that you have chosen to reveal yourself, but you've, done to, you've chosen to reveal yourself with gentleness, uh, not intimidating us. And I just pray this morning that your spirit will once again um, remind us that your story, the story of creation, the story of life, it is a love story. And you, we were made to be those that live in your love forever. Draw us to yourself. Draw us to your word, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.